Welcome back to Policy Matters. We are Franz Buscher and Matt Dixon, and today we'll be reviewing some of the lessons we've learned from our previous season on Policy Matters and looking forward to the next season and topics that we're going to discuss. Matt, hi. How hi, Fran. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Do you have a good holiday? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> Seems to go very quickly, but yourself? Yeah, yeah, no, they all still. Yeah, it was lovely. It's a, it's, a, it's a shock to be back, but here we are. <laughs> so I thought we'd spend today some of our time going over some of the lessons we've learned from our guests from the previous season, mm-hmm. uh, discussing some of the sort of the key takeaway messages that, that, that we thought were interesting, and perhaps looking forward at some of the new topics we, we are going to discuss until Christmas. Sounds good. So we spent a lot of time talking about social mobility. That was kind of yeah. the overarching theme amongst all of the, uh, the guests we had. What is social mobility? Why is it important? Uh, what lessons are we learning? What's, what's academia saying? And how does it mm-hmm. tie into policy? And I thought it might be good to sort of review each of the guests and yeah. ask you, and you can ask me also yeah. if you like, <laughs> <laughs> what did we take away from them? So the first guest Perhaps our most, our, f- our most famous guest. I think the highlight of the, the highlight series, of this season probably. Was, was you, Matt Dixon. Yep, yep. So we spent a fair amount of time talking about the concepts of social mobility. Uh, what is it? Why is it important? Uh, what does the government do about it? And I think, I mean, apart from the fact that, it, yes, of course, it is important and it's not just a single unidimensional thing that many mm. people sort of believe it is, but it's quite varied. I think what struck me the most about our conversation is that that there is a real opportunity now that stakeholders other than the traditional stakeholders that are basically mm. academics doing some research and government and politicians talking how important it is, but they're not really doing anything about it. But there's other people joining the mix. So there's evidence and there's uh, debate in, uh, amongst employers, for example. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that that they're starting to to care about these issues, to look into these issues, to sort of incorporate it into their hiring and HR practices. Did you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's right. It's very interesting that uh, this whole social mobility research agenda has really come about in the past kind of 10 to 15 years that the first academic research started to be done on this, and it has become very much a, a policy theme that, has been quite prevalent for successive governments. Lots of talk about social mobility. So it's come from kind of nowhere at, at the turn of the millennium as a kind of concept, mm-hmm. particularly in, in politics and policy, to being something that everybody knows about or everybody at least thinks they know something about kind of social mobility. So it's quite interesting that it has become quite a, uh, an important thing for governments. But I think you're right. I mean, we we talked about the kind of logjam of government and and policy making at the moment uh, it's been an interesting time recently we had the social mobility commission uh, all the commissioners resign at, at christmas and and in frustration with the fact that the government essentially seems to be so tied up um with issues around brexit and that that sort of thing that they're not able to address social mobility that's what the the commissioners were complaining about and who knows, we'll, we'll have to see. There'll be a new commission and, and, and we'll see how things progress there. It's going to be difficult, I guess, for all areas and challenges um, with so much time focused on, on Brexit. But it's interesting that, yeah, there is this opportunity that we talked about where employers and other actors uh, can actually make a difference for social mobility. So incorporating it into their recruitment practices and uh, trying to ensure that there's talent out there that traditionally would have fallen through the gaps or, or wouldn't have made it through uh, the recruitment process. Mm. 
but employers are now looking a bit broader, casting the net a bit wider and not relying on traditional markers yeah. of talent such as uh, education credentials. Yeah. And it links quite quite well with some of the other things actually we will we'll talk about uh, in, in later shows where we were talking about education and inequality in the education system uh, because while those education inequalities persist and while companies rely on education as markers of ability and, and uh, and talent, then you know, we're always going to have this problem with uh, social mobility. So the fact that employers seem to be kind of taking the lead and moving this kind of agenda forward is a, is a really positive. I think it's step. it's very important that somebody, at least somebody, is taking this forward because yeah. you know there's a, there's been a lot of research on social mobility and, and and why it matters actually. And sort of the like you were saying, 10, 20 years ago, a lot of the research was based on sort of intercountry comparison. So you have this kind of this thing called the Great Gatsby Curve, mm. where you had this very clear relationship between inequality, income inequality, but also social mobility. So if you have high income inequality, you've got low mobility, etc. Yeah. New research seems to be confirming this, but interestingly, it's starting to play w- within the countries. So mm. I started looking at lower level geographies. It's always a different uh, a problem when you start comparing, you know, the United States versus Sweden yeah. and that kind of stuff. But uh, there's some interesting research coming out of the United States, out of Italy, that starts looking within the countries, looking at sort of much lower, uh, lower regional level indicators. Yeah. And again, the confirmation is there. What the causation is is another question, but the correlation seems to be certainly holding true that low mobility is associated with low education within the region, yeah. uh, low um, labor market participation, high inequality, yeah. poverty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, the academic evidence mm. is further, further, further pointing to the fact that people have to deal with this and look into this and, and accept it as important. Absolutely. Mm. So our next guest was Lindsay? That's right, yeah. So we would we'd establish this discussion topic around social mobility, what it is, how we define it, how it's an important policy area for all the reasons you've outlined and we discussed. And so our next guest was uh, Lindsay McMillan from uh, the Institute of Education at UCL talking about the role that education plays in social mobility um, so Lynn's done um, a lot of work in this area and she was talking about some of her research which just showed uh, the importance of education that a lot, uh, I think it, it was about 50% of the relationship between parents and children's income was transmitted through education. So it's like a huge uh, factor and over time it's becoming more important. So um, the relationship between a parent's income and child's educational attainment Mm. has been getting stronger over recent kind of decades Uh, and so this educational inequality uh, was getting worse effectively and then the returns to education so how much you get rewarded for education in the labor market that hasn't really been changing and so as parents income is having more of an influence on child's education you're getting this uh, persistence of income over generations and it's working through this educational inequality. Uh, so it's it's a really key area. We've, we've talked about it quite a lot. We've focused on education uh, quite a lot throughout the discussions because it's such a uh, driver in society of uh, outcomes uh, in, in the labour market, in terms of employment, in terms of earnings. And this intergenerational 
transmission uh, so this uh, this kind of mobility where you are compared to where your parents were and and how that how strong that relationship is a yeah. lot is driven by education and so it's a huge huge area yeah, education is something we kept coming back to I think in every single one of our shows and is likely something that we'll, we'll, we'll come back to in the future what I found particularly interesting about Lindsay is, is some of the work she's done on grammar schools yeah where um, you know, she showed this very, this huge social gradient uh, in terms of who goes to grammar schools. And this is, of course, the one quote-unquote social mobility po- policy that this government yeah. has, has tried to enact and is enacting is this kind of grammar school expansion, right? And simply, you know, some of the, um, the statistics from Lindsay, you know, this one here, which I have, if your child scores 80% in a test which is an extremely high mark for yeah. for any given, you know, test, one would assume, then if you're from well-off parents, you have a 70% chance of getting into a grammar school. And if you're from not-so-well-off parents, yeah. you have a 25% chance with the same test score. So a huge social gradient, you know, of making it into one of these quote-unquote prestigious grammar schools. And, and, and that prevalence is just striking, you know, and, and, and uh, the work she's done on that. It's interesting now, I think, going, going back to policy, we have this expansion of the grammar schools. Now there's 50 million pounds allocated to expansions. So no new grammar schools. Current grammar yeah, schools can set up new u- whatever subunits, I guess, somewhere. I suspect this will be quite an interesting experiment to follow um, because what you have, you're probably going to have a very geographical, very close geographical element tied to this. It's unlikely that a grammar school is going to set up a secondary unit, you know, halfway across the country. Yeah. They're going to be in the same region. They're going to be 10, 20 kilometers away. But you'll, but you'll still very much be in the local area. So I wonder what will these new expansionary units do? Will they continue the previous policy of basically just sucking up highly able children from well-off parents? Yeah. Or will they actually start to trickle down the, the social gradient and start taking up highly able children from parents with, uh, from children from lower socioeconomic parents? Yeah, that's a, I mean, we'll, like you say, we'll see how it pans out, but the evidence so far in, in terms of how the system has worked, as, as you highlighted, and as Lindsay's research uh, showed, that actually, you know, even when you look at the same attainment on a, on a test score, the chances are very graded in terms of background. And yeah. so the, this idea of Boris Johnson's talked about engines of social mobility, it's just couldn't be more <laughs> wrong. You know, it's, it's, um, it's dis- massively disproportionately better off kids who are, and, and parents, you know, there's a massive industry of teaching kids to pass 11 plus, getting extra tutoring. Yeah. And so, uh, it's really not a kind of a level playing field in terms of who gets into the grammar schools uh, and the advantages that that gets you. I think one thing that was very interesting talking to Lindsay is the fact that, you know, this policy is like a zombie policy that just keeps coming back, right? The particularly conservative governments keep bringing back this idea because they think this is a, a positive social mobility story. And for some, it is. Everyone has those stories of people they know who, you know, poor kid goes to the grammar school and does much better than the neighbor who didn't get into the grammar school mm. and that completely changed their life and that's obviously you know a good thing when people get educational opportunity and, and it um, helps them progress and are socially mobile however what we know from the research evidence is that you know this is a very very small numbers of people right in the aggregate and so much more likely particularly for children from poor backgrounds is that they don't get into the grammar school and then the research shows that their outcomes in school 
going to the secondary modern or whatever the kind of lower track school is that isn't the grammar school, their outcomes compared to similar kids who go to comprehensives are are actually worse, right? And so yeah. they end up with worse kind of labour market. And we just don't have those stories, right? It doesn't make the same kind of appeal to the media as well. You, see it on BBC News, you, you know. don't see it, right? So you yeah. don't hear about the kid who got into the comprehensive school because they lived in a comprehensive area and they did much better than the equivalent who went to a secondary modern because these people don't it's not a case of the person next door these are people who live in the next lea or or, you know Mm. even further away and so you just don't know these people so but there are millions of more stories like that than there are the stories of the the poor kid made good going to the grammar school and that's something that's just completely missed from the the national media um discussion Uh, and it just really highlights that uh, these really, uh, it's really not a policy of, of social mobility. No, well, we'll see how it pans out. Um, the next guest we had was Paul Gregg. My takeaway message, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think don't be young. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> depressing for, um, I don't think I count as being young anymore, so that's no. something. But um, No, it, it was quite a depressing story. I mean, it, it is funny. I do, I, I, I do tell people that if I were to apply for my job now these days, I probably wouldn't get it with the CV I had back then. Yeah. Simply because competition is so much harder. And, um, you know, standards are higher, uh, people are more educated, uh, but also where we are living now in a, in a period of lower productivity, wage stagnation, you know, this is generational divide. All previous generations were in absolute terms, always better off. And now we're reaching this point where the new generation is not better off. Yeah. Um, and we talked about that. I'm I'm not quite sure (laughs) what the solution there is. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of of hope uh, in the discussion <laughs> in that uh, obviously the financial crisis has hit young people pretty hard. I mean, on on the positive, there's a lot of employment, you know, high rates of uh, employment, um, even amongst young people. But at the same time, a lot of this work is kind of insecure, uh, precarious. It's, it's low paid. Yeah. Um, so that's not great. But Paul did talk about um, actually the the jobs being created in the economy that we are creating new jobs, and and it's not just a case of you know completely hollowed out. We have high skill and low skill. He did uh, talk about quite a lot of kind of more middling skill jobs that are being created. So that does um, offer uh, opportunity going forward. We talked in in, in the the next uh, episode about higher education and then vocational education after that. And so, you know, if the economy is only making high skill and low skill jobs, so graduate jobs, say, and and kind of jobs for people with low or no qualifications, then that's quite bleak because you've got fifty percent of people not going to not going to HE, so not going to become a graduate. Mm. Okay, so it, there was some uh, hope uh, in in what Paul was saying that actually there are some jobs being created by the economy at the moment that are kind of more um, skilled uh, but not necessarily graduate yeah I mean we do have to remember also that uh, the wage profiles of young peoples are, are, are quite quite particular in, in that they rise yeah. extremely quickly so I mean all 20 year olds 18 year olds tend to start on low wages and by the time you're 30 you're sort of almost hitting your maximum wage profile very rapid acceleration that still hasn't changed I would personally be interested in perhaps we can explore this in the in one of the next coming shows more about sort of the gender profiles mm. and, and especially how women, how, how, how have women evolved, <laughs> quote unquote, evolved in the labor market. There's obviously yeah. been huge changes in terms of participation, also in terms of education. I mean, for many years yeah. now, girls have been outperforming boys in terms yeah. of uh, GCSE A levels. That's been there for decades, also university now. Yeah. Uh, we see um, for the first time 
higher wages for women in the early part of the life cycle, in particular industries. How has that changed? Uh, it would be interesting to, to have a discussion around that. Yeah, I think there's huge questions of, uh, it plays into kind of demographic changes, family formation changes, the age at which people are, are partnering and having children and therefore interruption in, in labor markets for, for women primarily. Um, although obviously there's kind of policies now to share parental leave and this sort of thing and how that is going to affect things. Uh, and also the kind of assortative mating uh, is the term where we talk about people partnering with people of similar education and similar career profile and how that then plays out into the labor market and and uh, the distribution of work across families that's again something we didn't get onto with paul greg but he's done work before on kind of workless households and how work gets polarized into houses where everyone works and houses where nobody works so there's a lot of big kind of changes that have been going on and so it'll be interesting to kind of dig into that a little bit in a future discussion laura What's the one I missed? Yeah. Disaster. This is just, you know, when you get that nursery call yeah. saying, take your son to the hospital. That, yeah. That's what happened to me on that day. I think so. we'll give you a, a <laughs> let off on that one. That's fair <laughs> enough. But um, yeah, it was a shame because I know that you're very interested in, in higher education mm-hmm. and, and the outcomes. And, and uh, it was really good to talk to Laura about higher education and how different universities and different degree subjects are associated with different financial returns. Uh, when you get into the labour market. Uh, it was very interesting uh, talking to her about how much of a difference that makes, the raw kind of differences in earnings between people doing uh, different subjects. But it was interesting how that kind of dampened down a bit when you uh, took into account that you know the person who goes to Oxford is not the same kind of prior attainment background as the person who goes to Oxford Brooks, say, right? Both universities in the same in the same city and both good universities but the kind of prior attainment of the two is is different and when you take that into account you can it reduces the kind of difference between different universities so that was quite quite interesting but still there is this heterogeneity or this variation in outcomes by subject by university so even if you go to oxford you know you're not guaranteed to walk away with you know vast wages after that there will be courses subjects that you select at oxford that will have significantly lower returns than others. So we're thinking about the classical kind of, you know, arts and drama versus economics, yeah. which tends to come out highly. Yeah, that was one of the messages coming out that actually choice of subject matters, mm. no matter what, what university you're going to, but also looking at it the other way around, choice of university matters no matter what subject you choose. So there's no subject where across the board, every university you get, a, you know, associated with great earnings returns if you do that subject there's no subject like that and there's no university even Oxbridge um, and LSE you know there's no institution where you say every course at that university you get above average earnings it's you know so it's quite um, uh, interesting that there's that variation still yeah Um, in terms of social mobility we did talk about how changes in fees structure over the past 20 years has really not had a dent uh, on applications and in fact on young people from poorer backgrounds there they've been increasing their attendance over the last 20 years uh, so fees and loans and all that kind of shenanigans hasn't put people off but there's still this stubborn gap uh, between children from the better off households and children from the poor households still a big persistent gap in their attendance at higher education institutions and it really flagged up and, and highlighted back to what we'd been discussing earlier in, in, in previous shows, 
that these educational inequalities, they kind of emerge quite early in the schooling system and then they persist. And so by the time you get to age 18, the damage is done in that sense. Uh, and once you, yeah, once you compare people with the same prior attainment, so the same A-levels, there's no real difference in who goes to university dependent on parental income. It's all the differences in who gets the grades to be able to go. Mm. Mm. So it, it really flagged up, again, the, the, the challenges that we face in terms of educational inequality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is quite funny, just sort of just going back to one of the earlier points, that these results, that work that Laura has produced, is now in the public domain. It's out there. People can look yeah. at it. It's, uh, it's on the DfE website report. Um, I remember trying to communicate this to my university press team, and they they weren't quite sure what to make of it because there's sort of good news in there and bad news for every university. Yeah, exactly. And they had real they had a real challenge trying to figure out how to present this. You know, obviously they they prefer the good news, but it comes with the bad news. Exactly. Uh, and um, I think that's that's very interesting. And I think I think the 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 thing there is that that students need to be informed, need to make a very careful decision about what it is they want to do when they go on. Yeah. We had Sandra as well. Yeah, Sandra McNally from the uh, LSE. Um, yeah, she was talking about vocational education. I think a slightly more uplifting story than um, than I expected, actually, given that vocational education is usually associated with sort of, you know, the people who didn't make it to university. Yeah. Still, like you mentioned earlier, 50% of mm. essentially the youth population are going through this kind of, well, are not going to university. Yeah. I thought what was very interesting is that on the one hand, yes, there is a certain sort of sort of stigma associated with vocational education. It is a very unregulated, confusing type of marketplace for education. Yeah. Uh, but again, there are evidence of strong returns. It is not the case that if you do vocational degrees or vocational qualifications that you will end up with some sort of poor salary at the end of it. There are stories and there are significant stories yeah. of I, high returns. And I think she highlighted, you know, there are some cases where doing an apprenticeship in a, in a certain subject, I think engineering is one case, certain engineering apprenticeships have higher returns than a degree um, in engineering, at least at certain points in, in the life cycle, perhaps in, in, in the first 10 years of, of earnings. Um, so I think there was variation, as you say, uh, a bit like with the HE um, returns, there's variation. In the vocational, I think there's probably more variation because there's just so many more qualifications. And I was really struck by the fact she said there's you know over 100 awarding bodies for vocational qualifications, which compares you know with a handful who, who give out A-levels or accredit A-levels don't give them out for free, but um, <laughs> they do kind of awarding, you know, awarding bodies. And so trying to navigate through that system a, a, a message that I took away from that was just you know there really needs to be uh, greater clarity uh, for that system because if you are trying to negotiate that as a young person or a parent of a young person trying to advise and help what route should I take there are some amazing courses out there that are going to uh, train you and give you the skills you would need for the job you're interested in but it's quite a difficult system to navigate and try and work out okay Where's the quality? What are the uh, courses I should be doing? So, yeah, that was good and bad. Again, it was, it was kind of some encouragement there, but um, it was also work to be done. I think that was a message. I think I think on all the topics we've covered, there's always, I mean, of course, there's work to be yeah. done. I do think in some, it is perhaps a shame that this current government is extremely focused on Brexit and that it's crowding out all other policy yeah. matters. There is a lot of work that could be done in each of these areas that could be taken forward. Well, I mean, we'll see 
we'll have to wait and see where where time and space takes us. Yeah. <laughs> um, looking forward. So we we spent a lot of time talking about social mobility. Are we going to keep doing that, or should we talk about some other topics going forward? I think I think we could talk about that for for hours uh, <laughs> forever. And, and continue yeah. <laughs> to do that, but we'd probably want to uh, switch the microphones off. Um, but I think it's interesting. There are lots of areas that economists are giving advice to policymakers and having a positive input into the policy making process. And so I'm sure we will uh, inevitably touch upon uh, social mobility and education in, in future discussions. But I think it'd be interesting to yeah, look at uh, the work that economists are doing to address challenges facing the country, problems, and looking to you know advise policymakers and government departments and, and national government and local government. Uh, we've talked to a lot of people who are giving advice to the Department for Education, but there are quite a few other uh, departments that employ economists and that take research and, and commission research from academic uh, economists and researchers. So there are a lot of a lot of topics that we can uh, talk about that I think would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I've got some person once that, that, that I would like to see whether we can get some people in to talk about that. Uh, I think you've got all some lined up. I mean, we mentioned women earlier. Yeah. It would be very interesting to have a discussion about how young girls and, and women these days um, enter the labor market, yeah. how, 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 you know, what are gender differences. You know, this 20% pay gap keeps popping up year on year on year, but there's yeah. actually, you know, is there something behind it if we dig deeper and what is the story there? Same with discrimination. Personally, I have quite a bit of an interest, a kind of, you know, I should say a side interest, personal yeah. curiosity and sort of, you know, the effects of the environment on, on happiness and satisfaction. So hopefully we can get something going on there. Um, the ONS has a, people may not know this, there's actually a national well-being program uh, which measures our happiness. So this is like an alternative to GDP kind of gross yeah, national so there is happiness. An exa measure, exactly, exactly. So there's an argument out there that we shouldn't, you know, we are kind of an evolved society. We're at the mm. stage now we shouldn't just be focusing on GDP and money anymore. Mm. Maybe it's about our personal well-being, our mental well-being. And there is, there is a program out there since, I'm trying to remember, a couple of years now, that measures the sort of, uh, the, I don't want to call it gross national happiness, <laughs> but, you know, our, our well-being. So let me ask you, for example, how yeah. happy are you? On, on scale of 1 to 10, what, what's your happiness? Scale of 1 to 10. How satisfied oh. are you with your life? That's, um, a, that's the exact question. Uh, how satisfied? What scale of 1 to 10? Uh, probably pretty sad. I'd say uh, at least an 8. At least an eight. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, That's eight. Right. Okay, yeah. I'll go with eight. Okay, is that good? Okay? Yeah, no, I think I'm a nine. But you're a nine. <laughs> okay. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm super happy. <laughs> no, no, I, I think so. Anyway, so the average seven point seven, right? And that's that pretty high. It's quite high. Uh, and there's an interesting thing, you know, does it go up and down with uh, with recessions? Does it go up and down yeah. with GDP? What's the correlation there? But also. You know, is how how does the environment? So we're entering this sort of you know global warming keeps popping up. Yeah. We've had these incredibly hot temperatures, these weathers, and there's quite a lot of academic research uh, going on now and uh, trying to figure out what is the effect on people's well-being about that. So the I weather. think it might be yeah. nice to to have a show on that. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I can. I mean, lots of these things they always say when there's snow and there's disruption. You know, what's the cost to the economy and and how that kind of you know, they put a number on it, but these things have real kind of, for, for the economy, these have real world kind of values, right? It kind of uh, puts a dent in things uh, and, and it works the other way as well. So when you have particularly warm bank holidays, they always come on the news and it's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, spending was up, everyone's doing better because everyone's out spending money because it's a bank holiday. 
I suppose the other thing that's um, about the costs of uh, hangovers and how this has a, an impact on oh, the yeah. economy as well. And that's another area that's is quite interesting. A lot of economists working on kind of health, right? So what's the impact of, yeah, so hangovers, people missing work, sick days from work, right? How does that impact yeah. on productivity and on kind of national income? But aside from that, I guess there's a kind of public health is a huge area for the government. You know, we know we spend so much on the National Health Service and so... I cost. believe there was the the only department that got a bit of a, uh, a pay increase, right, from the budget. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it was this big hoo-ha before the summer this is about who's getting more money. <laughs> Health was the one that did get more money. It is, yeah, and, and quite interesting. There's lots of interesting uh, economics research around that, and there's people we can talk to. I was really struck by um, uh, a paper that um, a colleague in Bath has looked at the effect of binge drinking on the economy and so trying to put a value on that and he, they come up with this value that it costs 77 pounds per person per year that's the that's the cost it works out about 4.8 billion uh, of, binge pounds a year of binge drinking yeah okay. to the economy it's about the same amount the government spends on job seekers allowance every year so it's like huge you know chunk of money and i think you know why you know why why is this right so huh. if you look into it anyone turning up to a and e that's the average cost is £114 per visit just to go to A&E. The cost of an arrest, so if someone gets drunk and ends up getting arrested, they quote the cost of an, an, an arrest is about £15,000 when you take in all the police time and the administration, all this £15,000 £15, per arrest. And if there is a uh, road accident, like a fatal road accident, which obviously you know gets associated with, with uh, drinking and drink driving, cost of that is about two million pounds for if there's a fatal road accident yeah. so this you know i thought oh it's a bit and of a that funny sums up to four billion pounds you say 4.8 billion four, pounds 4. is the cost billion. of binge drinking right. so you know it sounds like oh it's a bit of a funny you know what are economists doing working yeah. on on that but actually when you think about the staggering costs of some of these kind of negative social outcomes of alcohol related accidents you can see you know, this is an important area for um, for us to know about and for policymakers because you know, subsequently you could think of different policies around unit pricing of alcohol and things like this that would, you know, try and tackle this issue of binge drinking. So that's one one area we could certainly talk about the effects of different things on uh, effects of health on the economy and people's lives. So I think you know the yeah. educate uh, the economics research on on yeah, yeah. health is is an interesting area to look at. Yeah, new government policy, ban drinking. There you go. You, he- you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorted, problem sorted. Five billion pounds in the pocket. Anything else? I think another one as well, I mean, people think of uh, economics as talked about as being like the dismal science, right? But actually... Oh, no. who, who, who says that? <laughs> I know, these <laughs> heretics. But um, yeah. uh, actually, there's as well as, as areas like health and, and education, economists are working on uh, crime as well. And I think this is really interesting when people look into the economics of crime uh, and so looking at uh, questions around you know what works in, in terms of reducing offending uh, again huge costs to to the state every year of, of putting people in prison and, and other sorts of policies to deal with um, offenders but also looking at things as like crime as a choice of career so what's the impact of a recession on crime do people you know suddenly there aren't so many jobs around and so people decide oh 
you know, crime, the payoffs, you know, there's risks of being caught, but I guess generally they're quite low. And so people factor this in and think, you know, I could go and do this job or I could become a criminal. And it seems quite funny to think about it in that kind of decision making. But you see this in the in the evidence that recessions have an effect on crime. Changes in minimum wages or introductions of minimum wages have an effect on crime because your options in the labor market and in the kind of criminal market relative kind of returns to those things change and you see this in, in the evidence so yeah I think that would be really interesting to discuss this crime the economics of crime I, I know uh, a little bit um, that you know there's been some studies in the US where they sort of delved into this and discovered that you know there's a real kind of economic underpinning into in these crime structures and yeah. and and, and, and um, organizational structures that almost mimic sort of you know uh, big industrial structures uh, it's mm. it's you know um, it's not just a random event you know being robbed there are economic structures behind it that that, that can be explained yeah and dealt with you know yeah. uh, I think all of this is kind of we're interested as, as the show is you know policy matters mm. we care about and I think most academics are in the business of, of research to try and find some answers that are going to help policymakers uh, to you know pass uh, laws and, and make policies that are going to make our lives better be that education health crime whatever it is uh, and so there are lots of people and lots of research areas we can uh, delve into and, and, and have a look at their uh, research and policy implications and see how that is helping to make a better um, society. Well, I definitely look forward to our next couple of shows. We'll have lots of answers for policymakers. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> I'm Franz Buscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to Policy Matters.